30th, five days after George Floyd died in police custody, the Black Lives Matter protests reached the streets of Salt Lake City and continued for weeks to come. Protesters chanted, kneeled, sung, danced, and laid on the hot asphalt streets for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The time it said Mr. Floyd was pinned beneath Minneapolis police officer's knee. The time became a grim symbol of police brutality. Protesters flooded the streets marching all over Salt Lake City to demand justice for victims of police brutality. On this episode of 2020 Vision, we're going to be discussing how the face of activism has changed this year and what's at stake. I'm your host, Ivana Martinez. These protests are not the first of their kind. Demonstrations have been woven into the fabric of America's history, and there's been a certain amount of success in creating change. From the Boston Tea Party to the women's suffrage movement, to more recently, the Black Lives Matter movement. Activism is not a new thing, but it's certainly changed how it's looked. With the COVID-19 pandemic and new restrictions limiting group gatherings, we're looking at the urgency of now and this moment. What inspired activists to head toward the street during a public health crisis? And how did activism change? Our reporter Elise Dunway spoke to activists and community members who marched and helped limit the spread of COVID-19. With everything that the year 2020 has changed, one thing that has remained the same is the need to advocate for our communities. The pandemic has highlighted the systemic issues within our society and has brought many people together working to create positive change. There are so many ways for people to get involved in their local communities and make an impact. Over the summer, protests gave people an opportunity to make their voices heard. To learn more about the protests and this type of activism, I spoke with Daoud Moumin, a 19-year-old local organizer. He has been organizing since he was 14 and currently sits on the board for March for Our Lives. He has also been involved with Black Lives Matter and has become a leader in our local community. The pandemic did a lot of things to activism. Our eyes were reopened to the idea that really the people that serve are for one another. We are supposed to be there in community. We are in this fight together. And I think ideas of, you know, mutual aid have been popularized, but also normalized in in 2020. And I think that's what the pandemic really opened our eyes up to is that the government has consistently failed to address the material needs of the people that they claim to be serving. I would say the second thing is obviously we had to start focusing on our well-being. This pandemic has been extremely hard on a lot of us for a lot of different reasons. And I would say that is activism to really focus on your well-being, focus on who you are, focus on getting through, but not just scraping by, but making sure that every day you are rested, every day you are in a good place. But that's not a privilege that a lot of people can afford, right? A lot of us had to work full-time during the pandemic. A lot of us had to really put ourselves on the line every day to make ends meet because the government gave us $1,200 for eight months to live off of. And I think about how the third way that activism has been shifted is I think education became a really a significant part of 2020 because we were all stuck at home. So I would say we became digital organizers. We started learning how to spread good information, how to get people access to information. But also the fourth thing is in both a weird, good and bad way, this pandemic really, in a good way, brought more people to the table. There's people that had to stay at home. There's people that were immunocompromised. There were people that were disabled. There was people that were economically disenfranchised that couldn't afford to be on the front lines. As big as it was, it wasn't as big as it could have been. But I would also say that this movement has brought 
so many new people to our table, but also these movements are now household issues where Black Lives Matter, we've asked the country to pick a side to stand with or against. And I would say in the most comprehensive sense, that's what the pandemic has done thus far to organize. Many people showed up to protest over the summer. Being in a pandemic didn't stop people from fighting for issues they believe in. But the pandemic did affect how these protests were organized, as social distancing and other health guidelines had to be implemented. The biggest thing that has changed is people putting on masks to do the social distancing. I would say the energy, the momentum, the frustration really hasn't changed necessarily because of the pandemic. I think it's been expressed differently, but I would also say we saw multiple researching prove that our racial justice movement did not exacerbate the numbers of COVID-19, but instead the government's direct mishandling of it. So I think it goes to show how not only careful, but also conscience activists have been. We've always urged people, stay home when you're feeling sick. Provide masks if you're able to. Wear masks if you're able to. Make sure that you're social distancing and also really following health protocols because at the end of the day, we are fighting for a good cause, but we also need to make sure that we're protecting our well-being. So it was really important that we, when we told people to stay home, we gave them work to do at home. We told them, you need to be organizing this way for at home. I would spend all night planning, organizing, and then all day executing. But there are some people that had to be doing the behind the scenes, the social media, the reporting, the logistics, the education. So I would say that this pandemic has made us recognize really the multifaceted element of organizing, because really that's what it is. There's so many tiers, there's so many layers, there's so many structures to this fight, to this goal. And really the way I see that there's a place for everyone. And I think this pandemic made us recognize that there's not an excuse to not be an activist. I also spoke with Ephraim Coombe, the student body president at the University of Utah, about the protests and community involvement. From organizing sit-ins with the police at his high school in Georgia, to serving on Mayor Aaron Mendenhall's Racial Equity and Policing Commission Youth Subcommittee, and Mayor Jenny Wilson's Council on Diversity Affairs, Ephraim knows a lot about how to get involved. I think it was a really cool thing to see, to be honest, because it's very large groups of people, but these people are also, they're like maintaining like the rest of the health guidelines. At the same time, they're distanced from each other. They're wearing masks. There's people with hand sanitizers at at some of these. The pandemic has definitely made things harder, but the people have been like creative and, you know, not everyone is going to do a physical protest. You know, not everyone can. There's a lot of virtual activism as of late. And so I think the pandemic has definitely had an effect on that. And I think in a broader sense, the pandemic has highlighted and kind of exaggerated a lot of the systemic issues that we've seen in our communities and and in this country overall. And so I think in that sense, it's kind of influenced the protests because it's made like these issues a lot easier for everyone to see. So you have more people who want to take action about it. There are plenty of ways to start getting involved in our communities that still adhere to the social distancing guidelines. From campus to citywide initiatives, there's something out there for everyone. But where should you start? First, do a health and risk assessment. What are you able to sacrifice? What are you not able to sacrifice? 
How is your health conditions? And the second thing is map out your skills, map out what you're good at, map out what you're able to bring to the table, right? And then once you've done that, I would say start just showing up, start researching, start connecting with people. But once you tell me, oh, hey, I'm good with graphics or hey, I have connections for safety resources. Hey, I have access to masks, right? When you know, when you know what you're able to provide, then you're a better asset. And if, if it's not any of those, if you don't have any distinctive skill, you're always worthy to show up, right? And just do the work and be a part of this movement. And I would say the fourth thing would be education. Education is so important. Reading books, reading articles, listening to Black people's lived experiences, making sure that we're actually showing up for these people. But ideologically, we know how to. Because a movement is only as strong as the minds there and the voices that are able to articulate and name the world that we are fighting for and against opening up a book, talking to friends, investing in the experiences of Black women, Black trans women, houseless Black women, and understanding that this idea of Black Lives Matter is not ambiguous. It's actual people. And I would say the fifth thing really would be consistency, a dedication to this fight, because it's really important that we have people in numbers often. We can't afford a one-time stand where it's one big hurrah then everyone leaves but a consistent pressure and a consistent fight to be doing this work i can definitely talk about getting involved on campus i guess if it's like more specific to asu our website there's still board positions that are open if anyone wants to like be involved with one of the boards you know whether it's like sustainability or government relations marketing campus events. There's all sorts of things to get involved with. Outside of ASUU, there's a lot of really awesome organizations. And I feel like there's like something for for everyone, at least for the most part. And so maybe utilizing Campus Connect to kind of see what student organizations are out there that you might want to be a part of and getting in touch with those. A lot of these organizations have like virtual options as far as helping people. And so I think everyone's kind of had to pivot a little bit. And so because everyone's had to pivot, there's still things for people to be able to do even during this time. In addition to the ways to get involved already mentioned, Salt Lake City has a mutual aid group that provides grocery and financial assistance to people disproportionately affected by the pandemic. They have also been involved in keeping the protests over the summer as safe as possible. To learn more about this, I spoke to Yolanda and Isaac, two people on Salt Lake City's mutual aids leadership team. So when the whole concept of mutual aid came into play because of COVID-19, Chandra, the main organizer, reached out to me because I worked with her prior through uh, my work as a sexual assault nurse and asked would be something I'd be interested in helping with and kind of giving the medical knowledge aspect to it. We actually modeled it from the Seattle Mutual Aid Network. So she is from that area and kind of had friends that were putting that together. And we saw the need for it here. This was like on a Friday and it launched on Monday. So it was really like Seattle's Mutual Aid that gave us the foundation as far as the forms and those kinds of things that kind of helped us get off the ground. And then kind of since then, well, first of all, it kind of like exploded into this big thing that none of us really thought it ever would be. 
At the beginning, we were turning over, redistributing around $50,000 a month. In that first week, it was like $10,000 donated, $10,000 out the door. And then also just the craziness of nobody understanding what a pandemic really meant and stuff and how long it would go on. From that, like we just started as a grocery and direct cash assistance delivery. That was the main thing because that's the main kind of service that you kind of need when people are having to be quarantined and it's not something that anybody's ever had to do before. The Mutual Aid Network is a fully volunteer-based organization. Whatever money they receive goes right back into the community. They have also aided the community by helping keep protests safe. It was something that we talked about initially on whether or not we wanted to get involved. It's important to all of us, but we are an unbiased entity for the most part. But our whole purpose of starting mutual aid was to mitigate the spread of COVID. A lot of our team members are going to these protests anyway. So if there was a way that we could mitigate the risk, like people are going to gather, let's have them gather safely. We can pass out masks if we can give people water, hand sanitizer, show that, you know, we have a voice, but we are also responsible because we do care about people. Hence why we are out there protesting. I think just to show a good force, like, hey, like, yes, these are important things, but there's also a pandemic and we need to be safe. I think it would have been kind of avoiding the dicey issues of mutual aid if we weren't to be standing and like trying to show as much solidarity as we can with these black and brown local organizers who are leading these protests. You know, like Yolanda said, mitigating that like risk while people are gathering is important, but also, you know, just showing up for your community in any way during this time. In essence, mutual aid has never been unpolitical. Because in a way, it's going against the current system. There is value in helping this person, though there's nothing in it for me. When getting involved in your local community, it is critical to keep yourself and others safe. If you are going to be in person, there are some measures you can take to protect yourself and the people around you. Easiest thing people can do to help people is just wear a mask. That's the biggest thing and that you can help all these people being disproportionately affected by COVID. Find something in your area. They're out there. So need to look. Even, you know, our we have a mutual aid Facebook group and people all the time have kind of started their own little, if you live in Taylor's, they'll like reach out to me. If they say that little cheesy, find the helpers, like that's exactly what it is. Check on your neighbors safely. Check on your family safely. I know there's going to be more opportunities to get tested regularly in the coming months. So definitely take advantage of that. I think everyone, if we can do our part, you know, in trying to keep people safe, you know, everything that we've been asked to do, wearing our masks and social distancing and washing our hands often. I think that's one thing I want people to hear for sure. I would really urge people, if there's an issue you care about, Start doing work. There's always groups that need help. There's always resources that are in demand. And there's always people that could use a hand. So I would just say, get to work. This has been Elise Dunaway, reporting for 2020 Vision. Earlier this year, in response to concerns about protesting amid the pandemic, the American Public Health Association declared racism a public health crisis. But with COVID-19 cases on the daily rise, we wanted to know if there was a correlation to the outbreaks we saw earlier this summer with the protest. 
Our reporter, Jacob Rueda, spoke with Associate Professor of College of Nursing, Nancy Allen, about public health concerns and ways to stay safe during protesting. It's been a socially and politically charged year with so much going on with the elections. There's been the George Floyd protest, police brutality, you know, racial inequality in the United States, along with it just being the pandemic that's been taking place, which kind of hovers over that, you know, what, and I just wanted to ask, what is your perspective on these two events that are going on? Well, it, it is a complicated, I mean, it just makes everything complicated. The pandemic in of itself is just, it's been a nightmare for everyone. And then to have this anger and these protests in light of a pandemic has made it very difficult for people to stay safe. What can be said with regards to COVID-19, people going out there, a lot of people aren't protesting, but they're not wearing masks or they're going to campaign rallies and they're not taking the social distancing precautions that the CDC is requiring right now. Well, I certainly understand and empathize with the people who are out there protesting. In terms of how they can protect themselves, wearing a mask, trying to stay six feet away, using hand sanitizer, and just limiting the amount of time that they're protesting can be helpful. What sort of things have you found with regards to protesting in the, in the pandemic? So to date, looking at the research that's out there, they looked at the data in May and June, and they could not relate big outbreaks to the different protests going on in the major cities. However, there have been some reports that people who went to rallies for President Trump, there were 18 of them, that there were large outbreaks infecting up to 30,000 people with 700 deaths. The difference between what's been occurring in protests, if you've seen it online or watched TV, is that people in the protests, for the most part, people were wearing masks. The striking difference in the Trump presidential rallies is that people were not wearing masks. And so we can't say for sure because these different reports have not been published in peer-reviewed journals. And it's really hard to, you know, there's so many variables out there trying to pinpoint the, in, you know, the exact infection rates. How have these findings been measured? So... They've done these statistical analysis and they've had different epidemiologists looking at the data from these different protests. And they have just tried to track the numbers in cities over a period of weeks and looking at the number of people who attended those and just to see if there was a rise that would have been outside of what they were trajected to rise at. Now that we know that these outbreaks have occurred, even though they haven't been peer-reviewed, we understand that, what would be the next precautions to take now that this has been reported? So I'm a mother and I have a child who lives in Washington, D.C., a couple blocks from the White House, and she has been attending these protests. And there has been many protests since over the elections and other things. 
And as a mother, I would normally worry quite a bit. However, she went out and got an N95 mask. And the N95 mask, and really when you think about wearing a mask, it's to protect others from you. It gives you some protection, but for the most part, it's protecting others from you. And an N95 mask is the most effective and it filters out 95% of the virus. So if you were infected, it's going to filter out 95% of the virus. A surgical mask, if it's fitting right, there's been estimates that it's filtering out about 60% of the virus. And then a cloth mask, depending on how well it's made, and how many layers there are, and if there's a polypropylene barrier, they can be between 35 and 50% effective. So as a mother, having my daughter at these protests, and she's going to continue doing that, I was happy that she was able to go get access to an N95 mask. The caveat here is that if everybody went out and bought these N95 masks, there would be even more of a shortage in the hospital setting for healthcare workers. So that would be problematic. So the best advice that I've got is to wear a well-fitting mask with several layers and make sure that it's clean, that it's not got moisture on it, and that you sanitize your hands. And once again, try to stay six feet away from people, which is difficult during a protest. How accessible is the N95 mask? I don't think I've seen any in a store. I mean, do they, can you get it at Walgreens? And I understand what you're saying. If the public buys more, then there's not enough for the healthcare workers, which I guess we could say that they're a priority. That's a great question. I have personally ordered, and they're KN95 masks. Oh, KN95. Yeah, and, and so they're made in China and you can just order those online. And so there is this access to them. But once again, we have to save those types of N95 masks for healthcare workers. You can get surgical masks and you can actually get N95 masks and N100 masks even at Home Depot because they were masks that were used for working with chemicals. That's why they're, they're at Home Depot, you know, mm. chemicals <laughs> and stuff. So you can still get some of those you know, at Home Depot. What's the difference between the N95 and the N100? So the N100 is actually like 99% effective Uh, at filtering. It it is almost, it's almost up to its name of 100%. And once again, this is filtering out what you could give other people and then also protecting you to some extent. Are the N95s reusable? Typically, if we had lots of personal protective equipment, or we Mm -hmm. call that PPE, people would just exchange them out, each patient. But that's just not our reality. So for the most part, people are wearing them for one shift and then disposing of them. So it's a difficult question. Can you wear them more than once? And right now, people are absolutely wearing them more than once. And I do as well when I go in to see patients. You say your daughter lives in Washington, D.C. She lives close to the White House. What has she seen? What has been her experience going out and seeing these mass gatherings taking place? Well, she obviously is there because she has a lot of passion for why people are out there protesting. When I asked her, actually, 
what is the biggest issue for being at a protest? She said, well, is your question about protecting me against COVID-19 or is it protecting me against getting arrested and getting hauled off to jail? Which in of itself, if you think about it, that's a that can be a very dangerous yes. environment. Absolutely. And so she said that basically she'd prepared for all of the above. However, in some of these situations, the National Guard has been called out. They've used pepper spray, they've used tear gas. And what don't you want to happen during a pandemic? It's that coughing, right? Mm -hmm. And the tear gas causes coughing. It seems a little unethical that you would trigger people to be coughing. And so she discussed how scary some of those situations were. Obviously, you're naturally obviously concerned for your daughter, but she's remained relatively safe. Yes. Well, she I'm has glad. taken those precautions. But that can't be said for other people, though. No, it hasn't. But once again, with the protests, scientists have not seen that there was a big increase in the COVID-19 numbers following protests in these different cities. Can a way be found to measure or to correlate protests or campaign rallies and infections? It would be so hard because it's not just attending the protests that could be your source of infection, but it could be a family gathering. And you have to remember many people, especially in the Black community, the Hispanic community, and they're disproportionately being infected with COVID-19. They're living oftentimes with multiple people in one household. So that would kind of skew your data. You can't just, it's not like you could set up this perfect laboratory experiment to just look at the effects of the protest mm -hmm. because of all these other factors. So basically what they've done is they've just looked at what the infection rate was in that city. Mm -hmm. And then when the protest came, did it increase more? It's not very precise because of all those other factors. So I'd like to uh, take a minute to just yes, talk about how COVID-19 is transmitted. And it's really transmitted by these respiratory droplets. They're spread when a person coughs or sneezes. These droplets can then, if you can think about it, I coughed on you, these droplets can can land on your mouth, your nose, and then you inhale it. And that's why they recommend this six feet difference. So the other way that it's transmitted is through airborne contact. And that is that you've been talking or being boisterous, no mask on, and this airborne droplet just kind of hangs out in the air and it can hang there for three plus hours. And that's some of the information we did not know at the beginning when we started looking at COVID-19. Thus, the importance of really wearing masks. I know we've said the different levels of mask protection, but overall, some mask wearing is better than no mask wearing. Absolutely. I mean, completely. So... The gaiters, for example, they're not as effective, but they're better than nothing. But if you have to make a choice, get a well-fitting mask 
and one that has several layers to it, not just one layer. Okay. And you can see people have these loose fitting masks and it's like, mm, that's not working so well. If something's airborne, they're going to be putting it into the air. And you know, the way this infection really begins is that an infected person coughs and they get those COVID droplets. And then, like I said, you take that into your nose, your throat, mm -hmm. And then the cells in the nose are rich in a receptor. And this is a fancy receptor. It's got a fancy mm, right. name. It's called angiotensin converting enzyme two. Mm -hmm. You gotta love that. We just shorten it. It's called ACE2. This enzyme is responsible normally for managing blood pressure in your body. What we know is that you've got a lot of those receptors in your nose and your throat and in your lungs. And what happens is, is that COVID-19 virus actually attaches to that receptor, gets inside of it, and then it starts changing that cell, that healthy cell into something that's really dangerous, and it starts reproducing itself. Now, when you have this infection going on, so once again, you've inhaled it, it's attached to this ACE2 and receptor that's in the lining of your nose and in your throat and your lungs, and it's changing those healthy cells. And then your white blood cells, they go out and they attack that virus, right? Well, what results from this attack is a lot of fluid. We, it's actually, the term is pus. It's all the end products of this fight that they've had, the white blood cells and the COVID cells. And that's how people end up with this pneumonia is from this attack. In your airway, in your lungs, you've got these little air sacs. And those air sacs are also filled with this receptor that COVID goes after. And if those air cells can't move the oxygen into the blood vessel, then you can't get that oxygen into your body. And after that, you can die because of a lack of oxygen. But there's also one other thing that has been happening that they found out, and this is, is that COVID-19 is overstimulating your immune system, and it's releasing these toxic chemicals called cytokines. And these cytokines are inflammatory. They call them inflammatory meters, mediators. It's called a cytokine storm, and it can cause blood clots, and people get strokes, heart attacks, they have renal failure. So it's quite a lethal virus because of the destruction it causes in your body. You said the Coast Guard or the National Guard, I'm sorry, excuse me, the National Guard or other military forces are out there spraying things on people and they're, you know, this was, um, uh, let's see, how can I say this? It was an administrative goal from the Trump administration to use military force on protesters. And these military forces are spraying chemicals or spraying things that exacerbate the situation. And it exacerbates these symptoms and allows for COVID-19 to basically spread even more. And some of those National Guard, and remember, they're there to protect people of course. in the United States. They ended up becoming infected after these protests. Now, it's unknown whether that's because they were living in quarters and not following you know, proper protocols, or if it's because there was pepper spray and there was 
tear gas sprayed into these crowds and then people arrested and they're coughing. So I wanted to ask just quickly about contact tracing. How helpful has that been? Oh, contact tracing has been difficult. And the reason it's been difficult has been the manpower and, or I should say woman power. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically the number of people that are available to do it, it's been slow. It's, they've been overwhelmed. It just hasn't been as effective as it could be. Certainly as it's not as been as effective as it has been in other countries. Part of it is, like I said, just personnel, but also it's in the United States, we tend to not want to use an app to track everybody we've come in contact with and to be followed, kind of that big brother feeling. It's not our nature. However, that has been effective in other countries. But there's downsides of those apps too. And that is, is you lose personal privacy and you are singled out if you do get COVID-19. But the bigger issue with contract chasing has just been, we've been slow to get it up and running. We haven't had the personnel. We haven't had the funding. It's really been a failure. Have they been able to find ways of contact tracing without the use of apps? Right now, what's happening is, is you get a COVID-19 positive test and then you're called, you're notified, and then a contact tracer is asking you all of the people you've been in contact with, and then they're called and notified. So it's taking place by phone. Um, Is there anything else that you might want to add with regards to the discussion about protests and uh, COVID-19? You know, I guess my recommendation is for people to just go out there and be as safe as they can and to really be prepared. Take your own water with you. Take your own food with you. Take breaks and try to stay away from those that are not wearing a mask. Hand sanitize as, as frequently as you can. And being outdoors, it does help some, but it's not a perfect situation by any means. This has been 2020 Vision. I'm Ivana Martinez. A special thanks to our guests Daoud Molin, Ephraim Kuhn, COVID Mutual Aid Representatives Isaac and Yolanda, and Associate Professor Nancy Allen. Our reporters are Elise Stanway and Jacob Rada. JT Wistersill is our social media manager.